Hey, I'm hosting my next live webinar. It's June 13th at noon Eastern Standard Time. Head on over to heatherchauvin.com forward slash live. It's called How to Become Time Rich, the second one that I did, and I am going to be pulling back the curtains even more. I love teaching this stuff and showing you step-by-step how women are becoming time rich. So I'm going to use case studies from my own personal clients, who she was when she came in, who she is now, and the exact kind of mindset shifts, implementation, and who she needed to become in order to feel time rich. So if this is you and you're like, fuck me, I need to figure this shit out, then head on over to heatherchauvin.com forward slash live. That's Heather Chauvin, C-H-A-U-V-I-N.com forward slash live, L-I-V-E. How to become time rich for busy women managing people, raising children, and deeply desiring more from life. Hello, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. I've been following you for a while. I love everything that comes out of your mouth. I truly appreciate your work in the world. Mm, Thank you for that. And I'm excited to talk about your book today. And let's talk about all things addiction, mothering, racism, everything in between of finding ourselves, coming back home to ourselves. So yeah, I'm just going to give you the microphone for a minute. And I want to know what you want the world to know today. What do I want the world to know today? Um, I think right now, I don't know if this is really what you're looking for, but right now, just before we we got on, I was thinking how important all these things I'm doing seem to be like doing all the stuff to get my book out there as in as many different places as possible, be consumed as many different ways as possible. And like some of them are happening, but I'm still cleaning my dog's throw up off my, my gym, my home gym floor and, you know, still bringing in the garbage cans. Like it doesn't really change my life. Yeah. And so the life that I've built, like that's the only real one. That's the important one. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing what I've done with this book, but the, the, the stuff outside of the way I'm getting it out into the world is feels like the outside stuff. Mm -hmm. The, the, the good stuff was writing the book and writing the book that I felt like I needed. And, and then the life I get to live as a result of what the transformation that happens in the book which is the cleaning up the dogs throw up from the gym mat, which is taking in the garbage cans, which is getting ready for Sunday dinner this weekend because my boys and my whole family are coming over. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was thinking. That that's, I, yeah. I love that because it is about actual life, right? People see the outside stuff. That's what we're always comparing to. Right. And then, but it's like the inside stuff that really matter. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that because- that is in your book. So tell the listeners about your story 
yeah. And then I'll keep asking you all the juicy questions. Okay. Uh, the story, the, the story I wrote about in this memoir, it's called stash my life in hiding stash. Like you stash stuff away. Um, addicts always get that right away. They're like, Oh, stash. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's about 10 months of my life during the year of 2008, during which I ended a marriage, went to treatment so that I could make sure to stay in my, my boys' lives who were little then, um, got sober, met someone and started falling in love with someone. So I started a new relationship. I ended a marriage and, you know, fought and addressed this really debilitating addiction that I had that was keeping me from my kids. All right, let's go to addiction. Yes. How do you begin to unravel that piece of yourself? So talking about like the word stash in itself, avoidance, like under you were on the outside, everything looked good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everything looked better than good. Mm. Yeah. Were you getting like the pats on the back? The like, must be great. Yeah. I mean... So I think, I think it kind of went like this for me. It was like when my ex-husband and I were dating, people would say, oh, you guys are the perfect couple. Can't wait for you to get married because, you know, you're our ideal couple, like the way, the way that your lives look. I mean, people would say this to me on a pretty regular basis. When we got married, you're the perfect married couple. Can't wait for you guys to have kids. Cause you know, we just wanted, they wanted to celebrate our relationship in it, but even without knowing what our relationship was, it just looked that way. Mm-hmm. And, and it was good. It was really good. Um, but they didn't know that <laughs> they just knew what they saw on the outside. And then once we had kids, you know, it just kept going. So people, and I joke now that people come to us, my ex-husband now and I, and say, you guys have the best divorce, you know, like we want to be like you when we get divorced. How do you guys do it? And uh, so, so yes, I was getting pats on the back. I was, I was being placed in these leadership positions in my children's school, which was, you know, it's not what it was. It is a very um, prestigious elite school. So it was an honorary, you know, it was an honor to be placed in those positions there. Mm-hmm. And it was a an acknowledgement of how I moved through the world, of who I was to people being placed in those positions. So those are all accolades, all, all pats on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a lot to live up to. Yeah. Or I shouldn't say that. It was a lot to live up to for me. So what um when did the addiction start? So it's hard to say. You know, I've I've been telling people it's like that Hemingway quote, gradually and then suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started taking the the drug I was addicted to, which is Ambien which most people usually have a question mark on their face when I say that because they're like, how do you get addicted to a sleeping pill? Um, but I started taking it when my kids were little and I think I was dealing with postpartum anxiety, although I was not diagnosed, but looking back on it, it just really seems that way to me. The the inability to kind of leave my kids for any period of time, the hypervigilance, the not wanting to do anything but be with them. Mm-hmm. like those. 
I could cloak those under like being a good mother, but they, I was really anxious all the time. And it started after my second son was born. When I wasn't sleeping, a doctor gave me Ambien to sleep. I had never had it before. I loved it, Heather. Like, I was just like, because it was like, if you can imagine like a fire alarm going off in your head for three years, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you take one pill and it goes silent. And it's such a relief. And I felt energetic. And I felt, I mean, after I woke up. Um, but I felt like I could be a good mom. I had beautiful, like technicolor, gorgeous dreams when I took the Ambien and Mm -hmm. I woke up feeling refreshed and full of energy and ready to face the day. So in my mind, I absolutely needed these in order to show up the way I wanted to for my family, because I didn't like the way I had been showing up before, which was kind of anxious and hand wringing and overbearing. And, um, you know, like I said, just scared all the time. And this gave me that freedom. But like the second year I needed to take like one and a half to get to sleep. And then, you know, it went from like one bottle for a whole year to one every night to one and a half to three to as many as I could get the year Mm -hmm. that I write about. So as, when did you know you had a problem? Well, I think those are, there's two questions there. I think I knew I had a problem long before I acknowledged I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when that was that I knew I had a problem. Uh, I mean, I have journals because I wrote everything down. I'm, you know, I've always been a writer where I write like, am I taking too much of this? Maybe, but I have this big event last weekend and I really needed to, like I would justify it in my writing as soon as I even wrote down the question that I obviously didn't want to look at. Uh, I didn't acknowledge that I had a problem until uh, July 4th of 2008. And what, so like, what does healing look like for you? Obviously, when you're in recovery, that's intense. When you go to treatment, that's like intense, rapid healing. But what has that looked like after and continuing? Yeah, I, uh, I think treatment for me, because I refused to participate in my recovery while I was there, I was really, really resistant. And um, I can't think of what the word I want to use is, but I just refused to join in anything there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what it was for me was just the abstinence. Um, they kept me away from my drug of choice for 30 days and 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 alcohol and obviously any substance. I mean, that's not actually entirely true because I was I was medically detoxed. But then after that, there was nothing. And so that kept me there and got me off everything. The recovery for me started when I got back to LA. That's where I live now and um, entered into 12-step recovery mm-hmm. and therapy. Um, for me, they I don't know that one could have worked without the other. I, I really needed both. And the the basis, like the foundation. So the, the foundation of my addiction was deception and lies, Mm -hmm. dishonesty. And the foundation of my recovery is honesty. And so when I start there, like just going through my day, telling the truth, like even just cash register honesty makes it so I don't have red in my ledger, probably at the end of the day. 
Mm. I don't have anything to go back and clean up because I omitted something or I was dishonest and I called and I said I was five minutes away when I actually hadn't left the house, like those types of things, which may not matter to probably a lot of people. But for me, it's a very slippery slope. Like I can't allow myself a little dishonesty. If I do, and I have for sure, I've said things that are dishonest. I've withheld information, but I go back and I clean it up. Because I don't want to backslide to where I was and having to start telling lies upon lies because I've told this lie. Now I have to tell this lie to cover for it. And then I think that was the the scaffolding for my addiction. Like I said, I think I needed something in order to deal with this, this false life that I had built. So now let's take like a bigger bird's eye view of the yeah. culture of mothering and addiction and just being human in general, culture, all of that. What are you, I'm just curious what, like from outside in and all everything that, you know, your own personal experience as being human, what are you learning about that? Well, gosh, I mean, I think because my kids are grown now, they're 25 and 23. So mothering is a whole different thing for me now. It's, it's more about just, you know, letting them have their lives and not trying to run everything <laughs> for them, <laughs> which is what which I is love a, to do. Yeah. It's a daily uh, check. <laughs> yeah. I love to project manage my kids. Like I love to like, this is what you're dealing with. Okay. Let me, let me put this in place. Let me make these calls. Let me come over here and we'll go down the list. Like I love to do that, mm-hmm. but I don't kind of, I do a little bit, but not that much. <laughs> You're like, I'm aware of it. I I check in once in a while. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but for me, prior to getting sober, motherhood looked like, um, not that I didn't love my kids. I mean, I was so in love with my kids, but the, it looked really performative to me. Like I was trying to keep up with everybody else's style of mothering Mm -hmm. and trying to match that same energy, like around different things that didn't appeal to me. Um, Like all the activities that, that moms do together, like the drum circles and the, my gym and like those, like I hated those things. (laughs) And, but the other moms seemed to really enjoy the social mm-hmm. aspect of being there. So I would try to match that energy while I was there. And, you know, the whole, the whole thing, like every, everything about mothering that I've learned is one to let my kids to support my kids in being themselves in the world while giving them the tools to be whatever they need to be. But but I also didn't know that I needed to support myself in being the kind of mother that I was. Mm-hmm. while giving myself the tools to become whatever mother I needed to be at the time. So I couldn't completely shut myself off from like, you know, um, I, I want to say outside help, like interventions, like my my older son's severely, severely dyslexic, right? So I wasn't going to take that on myself and try to um, to intervene and give him what he needed. I brought in somebody for that. Mm-hmm. But But there are... There are other things, you know, as, as they grew up that I just, I didn't want to participate in, but I did anyway, because I felt obligated. And, you know, I really, I felt obligated to be, there used to be a, 
in the 70s, this ad for Anjali perfume. And it would show this woman, this white woman, blonde hair. She would come in in her business suit and she would say, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan and never, never, never let him forget he's a man. And (laughs) it was very popular. And and so I kind of felt like I needed to be that all things to everybody, still stay up on my pedestal. And, you know, I, what I learned in sobriety is that the best thing I could do for my kids was one, to take care of myself, to be myself. And then, like I said, to allow them to be themselves while giving them the tools to operate out in the world, which means they had to go to school, which means they had to do their homework, which means they had to, in my book, write thank you cards. Not that they need to continue it, and they didn't. (laughs) There's a little uh, resentment in your voice, and I didn't. Continue. But I gave them those tools so they know how to do it, you know? And it's it's their option if they want. I love that. Okay. I want to know your relationship with joy, feelings. Like we all know, well, not all of us know what pain feels like, like the depth of pain, but like, I like to talk about the duality of healing while we're trying to reach for joy, ease, fulfillment, abundance, all those things. So what, explain that in your definition through the journey. Boy, joy, joy is also a word I've been thinking about a lot this, this last, my fiscal year, my birthday year. I thought about it when I turned 58 in August and I listened to this meditation about playing. Like, do Mm -hmm. you have enough play in your life? And then they were giving examples. I'm like, I don't do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like my boyfriend, Scott, like he likes to like pillow fight and stuff. I hate that. (laughs) Like, don't hit me with the pillow. (laughs) Don't tickle me. Like, I don't, like this I'm is not, anger. This is yes. not play. Not fun. Um, the things truly that bring me joy. I would say one of the biggest things is our Sunday family dinners. And they've grown exponentially because now each of my sons have girlfriends that they live with and they come over. And I have two brothers that live here in LA, one that moved here recently and they come and my mom comes and my bonus daughters come whenever they're in town, which one of them is this this month. And it is to sit amongst that cacophony mm-hmm. of voices, you know, talking over each other, telling, catching each up on each other's weeks is like, that is pure blissful joy for me. Mm-hmm. And the gratitude that comes with that is that I know, and I don't think, I don't suppose, I know it wouldn't have been possible had I not gotten sober. Mm-hmm. Because I would have either ended up in jail or dead. I was taking lethal amounts of drugs and washing them down with alcohol on a nightly basis. And it was getting worse and worse and worse. I was not able to make it better by myself. I tried. Mm. So the fact that I I am able to do that brings me even more joy. That is like that I get filled up with gratitude about it. My bed on clean sheet day... <laughs> Brings me absolute joy. Like I hop in it like I'm three years old and I snuggle under the sheets and I they're crisp and they're clean and they smell good. And I love the smooth pillowcases. Like I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I get in bed around 8.30 every night. I don't go to sleep till 11.30, but mm-hmm. 
but I get in bed and I so enjoy it. And I read and I watch TV and Scott and I talk, you know, sometimes we fool around, but it's like, it's like, that is the end of our day. And it's so much fun for me. It totally brings me joy as does writing, Mm -hmm. sitting down at my computer. Like when I know I'm done with podcast work today, I, I don't have any more interviews. I can just write for six straight hours. Mm. Joy. I'm so into it. Like I get my little cup of decaf coffee. I put on um, I Love Lucy or Mary Tyler Moore in the background because that's like soothing for me to write by. And I just go. And it's it fills me up too. It's so good. I love this. Okay. So what I, I heard nothing about making more money or losing weight or all the things that people perceive to be happiness. Yes. So how do you know, or how did you know when you were experiencing joy? Like when you're like, what is this entering my heart? What is this? That's like, was that a new feeling for you? Like post-recovery? It was, uh, a feeling that I returned to. I absolutely had joy when I was a little girl mm-hmm. um, about similar things, but, but different, you know, it would be seeing my best friend, you know, or getting a sleepover yeah. with, with her after school, you know, and um, playing soccer. I loved to play soccer when I was a kid, I grew up on the East coast, everybody played soccer. Mm-hmm. And so those were like some of the things that absolutely brought me joy snuggling with my mom. Like when she would be reading to me when I was really little, that mm-hmm. was a joyful moment. So I think that I lost my connection to that somewhere along the way as I got older. And I definitely had feelings of elation, which I can be really, I can confuse easily with joy. But the joy returned for me after sobriety. Hmm. What's the relationship you feel now, like in your life today, with not sustaining joy, but feeling it more often and pain? Hmm. Um, I think leaving like the door open for more joy, like leaving my access, giving myself access to it is. That work uh, is to one, (laughs) not overcommit because this is what happens. It's like I'm riding this wave of kind of feeling high off life and someone asked me to do something and I'm like, sure. And someone else asked me and I'm like, sure. And then I'm bogged down with all these things that I've said yes to and I feel the joy draining out of me. Mm -hmm. So I have, I don't have to, I, I try to be really mindful of what I commit to. Um, And again, it goes back to like what you said about it not being something that's making me money or, you know, a diet or anything. What I'm talking about, like the people that are important to me in my life, if I want to commit something to them because they're important, that that I'll do. Mm -hmm. Or frivolous stuff. If I'm feeling bogged down, if I'm starting to feel the joy depleting, I, I will say no. Or later. Or I'll get back to you. And that's not easy for me still mm-hmm. almost 15 years later. I, because I want to be liked and I think that's it. It's actually, you know what it is. You know what it is. I don't like being uncomfortable. My mm-hmm. fear of discomfort drove everything. So if like Heather, you asked me to do something and I had to say no to you, I would be uncomfortable about that. And I don't like that feeling. 
it looks like I don't want, I want you to be happy, but that's only partly true. Yeah. Because your happiness makes me feel comfortable. (laughs) And that's really the end goal is to be comfortable. So I'm in my mind, but what I've learned is that the discomfort is just discomfort and I can move through it to the other side of something. Let's dive into the power of habit stacking. A simple change I made was adding AG1 to my morning routine by mixing it with a liter of water right after I wake up. If you've been with us for a while, you know I've been enjoying AG1 for a few years now. It's seamlessly integrated into my daily routine and enhancing my energy levels. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement supporting universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the way in foundational nutrition, refining its formula to elevate your baseline health. AG1 is my trusted daily support, and that's why I've been using them as a podcast sponsor for so long. Taking charge of your health with AG1. Try it now and receive a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free travel packs with your first purchase at drinkag1, like the number one, dot com forward slash EU. Drinkag1.com forward slash EU. Now back to the episode. Yeah, that's where I always say this is where the magic happens because that's where the healing is, right? You're like, ooh, wow, that made me uncomfortable. And you're like, well, frick, if I would have just said yes, yeah. could have moved on. But now I had to say no because I don't have capacity and I'm sitting here with this discomfort. It's annoying, yes. right? And it's like lingering. Absolutely. It's annoying when you choose the path. Um, so let's talk about feeling othered. Your podcast is called The Only One in the Room. And you you talk a lot about your own story about feeling othered, and you talk to a lot of people that feel othered. I do. I want to talk about that, and then I want to bring it back to like what we just said because I'm I have a theory. Okay, <laughs> about discomfort. I don't know. We'll see where this conversation goes. So uh, othered. Let's talk about that. I'm an only uh, one in the room. Thank you. The the only one in the room um, was born out of a viral article that I wrote for HuffPo about being the only Black person at a 600-person writer's retreat with Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed, two people that I love and admire and don't know, but I just love and admire their work. And while that experience in one way was exhilarating because I was, you know, there with these women whose books I keep on my desk for inspiration I also had this really solo experience and uh, the exclusion that I experienced was unique to me because I had never been, I've been in a lot of white spaces before and been the only one, but never that big, never for that long, for three Mm -hmm. days to never see another face like mine uh, was isolating. And so when I wrote that article, um, we got a lot of response right away. I say we, I'm including Scott in this, who didn't write the article, but he and I started the podcast together. And so he and I were looking at the DMs that we got, and I thought they would all be from Black people. They weren't. There were some, but 
they were, there was no mainly they were, there was, it, there was no medium. It was everybody. It was people from all over the world, all different races, ethnicities, ages, um, abilities, disabilities. And they were all saying, yeah, I know what it's like to feel alone in a room full of people. Hmm. You know, women who look like you were hitting me up saying, you know, I was the only one in foster care, you know, in my school growing up, I was the only one, you know, like they knew they understood it at their core. So those are the stories we tell on the podcast. We interview people about feeling othered with people who um, understand what it's like to feel alone in a room full of people. Okay. When you, so this is my, not theory, but like the otheredness is we can all look alike and still feel alone or still feel othered. What do you think that is? And how do you feel that is actually going to bring us together? Well, I think that's one of the the hopes of why we started the podcast was that people, you know, people of the dominant culture, maybe people, um, you know, who, who share a lot of the same characteristics can listen to one of these episodes and then understand better what it's like to be someone like me mm-hmm. in the world, moving around in my skin with my hair, with my experience and have more empathy, but also just more connection. And because everyone has felt alone in the room full of, in a room full of people, I think, I think everyone has an only one story, even if it's just a moment. You know, I interviewed a guy the other day who's a, a chief finance officer for a large company, and he ends up by mistake at this women's conference um, where it's all women CEOs or CFOs mm-hmm. and female CFOs rather. And he uh, he's invited to stay because he's already there. And he's, for the first time in his life, he feels you know, supremely aware of himself in that room because he's different. Right. And wondering, do I belong here? Should I sit at this table? Should I talk to these people? Am I allowed? Are they going to want me? Like, so he has this experience and he comes back changed because he was a minority mm-hmm. in, a, in a room where he's very, I mean, finance, you're going to be hard pressed to find a room where he wouldn't be the, in the majority. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, he wasn't, you know, everybody in the room was white. He's white. But the story rang true because he had that experience and understood better what it was like. And he's actually spent a lot of his time making his company more inclusive and has 50% women on his floor now instead of the, you know, 3% that there were before he went to that conference. So I love where that story went, because I actually think so many times like emotionally uncomfortable is also just putting yourself in rooms that you don't feel you belong in. Obviously, if somebody like myself, who's went in many white rooms or spaces and I'm like, I belong, or there's a part of me that doesn't feel like I belong, but I look the same. So there you go. Right. Like, but physically putting yourself in other spaces and actively listening, like shut the fuck up and just listen. And anything that comes up inside of you is yours to keep, not yours to puke or project on. So I love that story about 
how him being in a room that was like, I'm not supposed to be here. And just the discomfort forced him to create change. We don't have, it's not reading a book or listening to a podcast. It's like putting yourself in those spaces to understand what it will not, what it will ever truly feel like, but that it forces you. There's like a current in there, gives you a different perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think, but I think it is kind of what it feels like because what it feels like for him, right. To be othered. And, you know, it's not always necessarily a bad thing to, to be othered, but it is, it's like, I, like you said, and I think actually you said it first, it is, it is the connection that we make in that space. Like, do we, do we see, ah, this is how so-and-so might've felt, you know, the world is created for right-handed people. Everything Mm -hmm. we have is made for people who use their right hand dominantly. And I almost never think about left-handed people. You know, you sit at a school desk, everything's set up for a right-handed. And so just building awareness around that, right? Mm -hmm. Just like going into a room and thinking about what is a left-handed person going to do in this seat or on this train or whatever it looks like um, with these scissors that aren't made for left-handed people. Mm -hmm. Expanding our minds, even something that's little like that, because it it can help us look at everything differently. Yeah. I had, um, I saw a post the other day. It was, well, it would have been March 21st. It was World Down Syndrome Day. And I have a few friends that are advocates in that space. And someone wrote something about a neurodiverse child. And then my friend wrote, welcome to the club. And it was like, yep, period. Like, welcome. This is yeah. And you don't know until you're listening to other people's stories. And that that's, that's the beauty of what I think you've created. So I just wanted to say thank you because you can, it just opens your mind a little bit of, you don't think of that at all of what that feels like for somebody else who, yeah. And I think it, for me as a parent, this is my current challenge is trying to put myself back in my 18-year-old son's brain. And on the outside, like this is just daily life, right? We're so, per- like we're looking through our lens. We're projecting our way of being. And to have that empathy and compassion of like, I actually have no idea what you are experiencing right now. And I just want you to do X, Y, Z. And it's like, but you can't. That's the challenge for me is the holding that space of knowing someone else is having a different experience, but not really knowing how to empathize with it in the moment. Um, Yeah. It's not really a question there, but it's just a reflection on being human and how we can just be kinder to one another. Yes. Well, that holding that space is so important because I think people get so, they rush to close off and rush to judgment or rush to be like, oh, well, that's not me. Mm -hmm. I don't need to think about it or deal with it. And trying to empathize, putting yourself in your son's brain is an, is an act that can be expansive with, with anyone, you know, just every time I want to judge like the barista at Starbucks who got my order wrong. I like try to, because my first instinct is 
I'm going to check them for for whatever they did. Even if they got my name wrong, I want to check them. Mm -hmm. And then to look at the line of people, right? Look at how many orders they had to get right that day. Look at their, you know, they're probably your son's age and maybe this is their first job. This could be their first day on the job. Like just to really create that empathy within myself so I don't snap. Laura, let's talk about the book, wrap it up. What, because I don't have your story. I am so intrigued by what is your expectation for the readers of Stash? I don't know that I have an expectation, but certainly my hope is that my my first, the reason I wrote the book was so that women of color could come and find themselves in an addiction memoir because there just aren't any. And I, I say there aren't any, not meaning that they've never been written before, but if you search for them on bookshelves and bookstores right now, you're not going to find any because they weren't bestsellers and they don't reprint them and they don't keep them in stock. Mm-hmm. So my first hope is that women of color of all colors find themselves in my story. My second hope is that all mothers can find themselves in my story. I had two kids under the age of five. They were I hesitate to say they were boys. I used to say that really easily. And I, you know, so, so many things are gendered right now, but let's just say they were spirited children (laughs) or high energy. And, and it was hard. It was really hard. And, and pills and, and alcohol honestly did help me show up. It, it turned on me, you know, but I think a lot of moms will be able to relate. I think a lot of people who are stuck in relationships will be able to find themselves in my story. And maybe they'll see that, you know, as scary and uncomfortable as it might be, choosing the possibility of happiness might be better than staying where they are if they're unhappy, if they've been enduring. Um, and, you know, and I I would love for people of the dominant culture to read my story and and have a different eye, or not not different eye, but see... Black addiction through a different lens. It's not all drug dens and prostitution and childhood sexual trauma, valid stories, incredible stories, but not mine. And we're not a monolith. We're not all the same. So those are my hopes for for readers to get from it. And where can people find the book? Where can people find you? What do you have going on? Um, You can find the book at simonandschuster.com. You can find it in my bio at Instagram, which is at LauraCathcartRobbins.com. No one ever knows how to spell Cathcart, so get it from the show notes. <laughs> it's C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T. Robbins has two Bs and an S. Um, Amazon has it anywhere, anywhere um, you get. And actually, I want to uh, give a shout out to independent bookstores. Um, before, I, I'm very guilty of using Amazon for everything, but before you just kind of rush to click on Amazon, if you have a neighborhood bookstore, please go mm-hmm. ask them if they have the book. And if not, ask them to order it, but you'll be supporting them because neighborhood bookstores, independent bookstores are dying and they need life breathed back into them because, you know, I I I don't want all our neighborhood bookstores to go away. I don't want it to all be these big chains, even though I'm grateful for them. I think it's a really special thing to have somebody that loves books that curates them and brings in and brings us to a neighborhood. So please support your neighborhood bookstore. 
Yeah. And I love, that is actually something that brings me joy, like going to like a really good bookstore and just smelling the books, talking to the people. Um, And it is a little, it's a little tiny way that people can advocate as well, because most of the times when you are like asking for a book, they've never heard of it. And then all of a sudden they start to stock it. And then you're just a slow ripple effect. Absolutely. They may, they might order two if you order one to have it on their shelf to see what it does. And then it can start that ripple effect. So thank you for that. Yeah. And the podcast, the only one in the room. Awesome. The only one in the room. You can find it at theonlyonepod.com. That's our website. You actually find everything about me on our website. Um, it houses the book. It houses interviews, appearances, pictures, um, and all of our podcast episodes are are there. And um, Eric Brotman is the one that I talked about, the man who found himself in a room full mm-hmm. of women. If you're interested in that one, I love that conversation. That was, I think, in November of 2022. So you just have to scroll back a little bit, but um, yeah, the only one in the room, the only one pod.com. Awesome. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Heather. If you are an ambitious woman who feels like you never have enough time, this is for you. I want you to head on over to heatherchauvin.com forward slash more time. It's 197. It's a one-on-one time audit. Yep. Personalized time audit for you. So you can learn to master your time so you know exactly where to invest it in order to create a life that feels alive. Whether you are trying to grow and scale your business, whether you are trying to find more time flexibility in your corporate job, or whether you kind of feel lost in the messy middle and you have no idea where to focus first, you're going to get a map, 30, 60, and 90 day plan based on your unique vision. Head on over to Heather Chauvin, C-H-A-U-V-I-N dot com forward slash more time and book your personalized time audit today.